Today's reading will be from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Brian. Morning, Redemption. How y'all doing? Fair. Great. Uh, my name is Frank. If you're new here, we're glad that you are here. Uh, it's January, so we have a ton of announcements, and uh, so we've broken them up. Allison took care of a few. She mentioned the midweek Bible study and the um, aging uh, presentation that uh, Tom Schrader is going to be doing on Thursday night. Uh, regarding midweek Bible study, I have a story about prayer. If you think that God doesn't answer prayer, let me tell you this story. Um, uh, there's somebody who attends here, and really he just comes pretty much on Sunday morning, doesn't really uh, come to any of the other uh, events that we have. He lives a little ways away. Uh, he's also from um, Minnesota originally, and he's a tremendous uh, Minnesota Vikings fan. Did anybody see that game last week or hear about that game? They're calling it the Minneapolis Miracle, okay? Minnesota won on the last play of a game on a 61-yard ridiculous pass play. Uh, anyway, um, uh, he shows up Wednesday night for the Amos study. And Ron, literally, I'm like, out of context, okay, what are you doing here? And he said, well, with 20 seconds left in that game, I prayed and I said, God, if I'll go to the Wednesday night Amos study, if you could just... Boom! So, I don't know. That's just funny to me. And then, um, so any, anyway, I, I had to tell you that story. So, pray, I don't know. Does that mean prayer? Word? I don't know. I, but God's there. He's doing something. A uh, couple of other uh, announcements. First of all, um, please look up here and hear this. This is really important. Super Bowl weekend in two weekends Sunday is the 4th. That's when the Super Bowl is. Uh, it's also the, the um, Phoenix Open. And uh, if you like golf. Anyway, um, so uh, last year what we did was we, uh, we just canceled the 5 o'clock service on Sunday night. Uh, one of the advantages of being one of 10 congregations is that there are other congregations that have really good ideas. This is the first time we'd ever had a 5 o'clock service, and so we thought... Nobody's going to come during the Super Bowl. Um, and so, and, and I was right, because nobody did come. I came down here during the Super Bowl party just to stand here and greet people who came for the five who didn't get the notice, and nobody came. So, um, but uh, the other congregations that have had five o'clock Sunday evening services for, uh, for a number of years, they've learned that the best thing to do on that weekend is to have the five o'clock service that weekend on Saturday night. So, that sounds like a really good idea, so we've decided to do that. Uh, on Super Bowl Sunday weekend, we're going to have our 5 o'clock Sunday service on Saturday night. So th the reason we're telling everybody in the morning, because most people kind of pick a service and go to that service, 
uh, is because some of you may want to come Saturday night and then have all day Sunday to, to you know, make your, your, uh, your food for the Super Bowl. <laughs> Uh, or you can go to the open and then the Super Bowl party, whatever it is. So Saturday night, we're going to have a 5 o'clock service. Uh, the other announcement <clears throat> is uh, that we're starting our men's, uh, starting back up our men's Bible study, which is always on Monday morning at 6.30 uh, here in the sanctuary. Steve Wheeler and Paul Tyson are going to be uh, taking the men through a study about uh, the challenges of getting too comfort too comfortable in our faith, and that's going to be about an eight-week series that's going to start on Monday the 5th. So good time to start a new Bible study is right after Super Bowl uh, Sunday. And then the last thing I want to mention is um, we are starting Ephesians today, and we do have study guides. And um, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the guys over at Tempe were charged with putting together the study guide. They've done a a really wonderful job, so much so that look, look how thick this is. This is just for Ephesians chapter 1 through Ephesians 3 verse 6. So we're not, this isn't even the entire study guide yet. I think there are going to be two more later on. We're going to take 39 weeks to go through uh, Ephesians, and so um, we thought we'd uh, assist everybody with, with these guides. Um, and a lot of people will say, how much do they cost? Uh, you know, we, we want to participate in that. We're not selling them. Uh, if you're interested in that, they are. Uh, they, they cost us a little over $2 a piece to be able to uh, produce. So if, if you want to pay for yours or um, maybe you want to pay a little bit more and let somebody else have a free one, just, just drop a couple of bucks in the uh, offering box. Um, that, that'll take care of it. We're not going to be charging anybody. I, like I, This morning I put uh, $20 in the offering box. So that means that 10 of you can have this for free. So you can discuss it among yourselves who's going to get them. But that, just that, that sort of thing. We don't want cost to stand anybody's oh, way for, for that uh, tool. So uh, I think that's about it. Oh, I do have one other thing I want to... A little family business this morning. Um, we, we have a bit of a challenge in this congregation. And, and that is the fact that all, God has provided us with, with this amazing property... Uh, buildings, uh, the wherewithal to be able to, to uh, re refurbish and remodel and everything, and we love our space. <clears throat> but I will tell you, one of the challenges of our space is that our morning <clears throat> services, especially the 9 o'clock, can get pretty full. And just look around, you, you can see it's, it's pretty full. Um, one of the challenges we have is that uh, although it is pretty full, there are still uh, seats available. But when people are standing to sing, have you ever been in the lobby uh, like about five minutes after nine and looked out uh, over the congregation while they're standing and singing? It looks like there is absolutely no place to sit. Um, this becomes a challenge for two reasons. One, uh, new people who are coming for the first time, they don't know what to do, and when they see that, it's really hard for them to figure out where to go. And we do our best with the, the hosting team to be able to try and help people find seats. You heard Allison also when she got up here ask everybody to uh, move in a little bit. We do the best that we can with that, uh, but there's only so much we can do. Here's the second challenge. Um, young families tend to come a little bit later, really through no fault of their own. Uh, I used to have a young family. Okay, I understand it. 
everybody's intentions are really good on Sunday morning. We're going to get up early, we're going to be organized, and we're going to get to church on time. <laughs> and then little kids happen, right? Can I get an amen from the young family parent? Yeah, okay. So, I, I mean, you do your very best, and then you get here, and then you got to check them into kids' ministry and, and all of that stuff. And I know there's, there's some grumpy old guys like me out there who are sitting there, you just got to get up earlier and start earlier. I, yeah, okay, it's hard, okay? Well, when they come in, finally, after the harassment of the morning and getting them checked in, they come in, and again, they see all of the, which is wonderful. We're glad we're full. We're glad we're full, but... Um, here you go. If we could think a little bit, those of us who are regulars, if we could think about maybe moving forward, I know everybody likes their own seat, uh, their, 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 their territory that they've marked out, but if you could, it's called secondary territory. If you want to have that conversation, I've studied territories, all right? If you could just move forward a little bit, maybe move in, be a little bit more aware of that as you get here earlier, that would be a really big help. The last thing I'll mention about that is uh, every now and then, some of you have a little trouble with the volume or the tone of the music. Guess what? Your, it's counterintuitive, but your inclination to sit in the back is actually the wrong inclination when it comes to volume and tone of the music. Up front, the way this building is engineered, up front is actually quieter. It's louder in the back. So some of you right now are getting ready to move forward. I can see that already. But anyway, so I really appreciate it. That's a lot of announcements, a lot of information, um, and I appreciate you sitting uh, through that. Um, let me pray, and then we'll get into uh, Ephesians. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for your word and its truth. And as we open up uh, this letter and, and start to work our way through it, uh, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds. And as Allison talked about this morning, uh, that we would be um, driven by the filling of the Holy Spirit uh, to overcome that awkwardness and, and the bother of genuine face-to-face, in-person relationships, because that's really what you call us to. John writes in his uh, second letter in the New Testament toward the end, he says, I have so many other things that I want to tell you, but I think it would be better if I came and visited you and told you face to face. That is the essence uh, of gospel-centered relationships. Uh, and so God, help us with that. Um, the book of Ephesians uh, is, is so rooted in the family of God and the unity of all things that, that that we just, we just pray that we would be a people that would press into that. Help us to do that by the power of your resurrected son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So, the next nine months in Ephesians. So, I want to answer this question right up front, because people would ask, why, why verse by verse? Because we are going to go verse by verse. At times, we're going to go word by word. And why so long? There are 155 verses in Ephesians. Do the math. It's like an average of four verses a week. There will be some weeks where we do one verse, and, and that's it. Why would we do that? Here's the reason why we do this at Redemption. The study of the gospel and of the Bible is not just for information, but it is primarily for formation. 
We are being formed by the word of God. It's important to have the information and the knowledge of the word of God. It's even more important that 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 word uh, transforms us. Having the information is not necessarily enough. As a gospel-centered, Bible-teaching faith community, it just comes naturally for us to slow down and take our time to ruminate deeply on the truths that we find in the Scripture and what they mean for us today. Uh, the book of Ephesians, the, the, the letter, uh, some of the pastors got together from redemption and they've sort of given it a, like a subtitle. And I want you to write this down, too, because this is something that for the next 39 weeks is just every week going to come out over and over and over. It is equipping God's people for tomorrow's world. And, and there are so many things that we could talk about just from that statement alone today, but I don't want to, I don't want to, it, it would just be too much. We're going to spend 39 weeks unpacking that statement, equipping God's people for tomorrow's world. Max Turner, who is a New Testament scholar, writes this, Ephesians is breathtaking in its theological grasp of the scope of God's purposes for the church and creation. It is a pastorally warm letter and spiritually sensitive in its counsel to its recipients. So what we're going to do today is we're going to give you some background on this New Testament book of Ephesians, and we're going to go through the first four uh, verses. So Ephesians is a letter. Uh, another word for a New Testament letter is an epistle. So you'll hear that word bantered around uh, during this series. An epistle is a is a specifically a, a, liter, a work of literature or a poetic work of literature um, that has religious or philosophical themes to it uh, that happen to be included in this case in uh, the New Testament. I know some of you are thinking the epistle, an epistle is, is maybe a wife of an apostle. That's not what it is. It's, it's a letter, and it was written to Ephesus, uh, but it was also written, as we'll see, it was written to be passed around to all the other churches, not only in Ephesus, but around the region of the city of Ephesus. And it was written in 61 AD. So it's a general epistle. If you read uh, Paul's letter, his first letter to the church at Corinth, and his second letter to the church at Corinth, you see in those letters there is very specific instruction for the people in that one local congregation. He's speaking directly to problems there. In Ephesians, what you're going to see is, is that he doesn't speak necessarily uh, specifically to any one problem that's happening in the, the co a congregation in Ephesians church, but rather he's speaking very generally about uh, the gospel and the application of it to our lives. But uh, but he's very specific about the gospel and the application to our lives. It's a letter that could be read in any church, but he primarily sends it to this church in Ephesus to then pass around. And remember, Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, he wrote this letter, um, he planted the church in Ephesus in 52 AD. So he's writing this nine or ten years after he planted uh, this church. Uh, so he planted the church in 52. He wrote the letter in 61. Where was Paul in 61 AD? If you remember from the book of Acts, he was in prison in Rome. And, and, and he wrote at least four of his epistles 
while he was sitting in prison in Rome. Uh, Paul was arrested and imprisoned in Rome on two separate occasions. This is his first imprisonment there when he wrote this letter. Uh, he was in prison there from 60 to 62. Uh, the Roman government finally decided that there really weren't um, uh, realistic charges against him, and so they released him. He, he got out, and then he was brought back into prison because he was riling people up with the gospel, and he had another stint in prison like late 64 through 66, and then he was executed uh, during that second stay in his prison. In prison. Um, also understand, Paul wrote 13 of the letters we find in the New Testament. He wrote nearly a third of the New Testament, so that's significant. Uh, now, let's talk a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was a major, major first century city. This is not some little town. This was a, uh, a major uh, first century city. Here's, I get a map today and I get to bring out my laser pointer. I'm so excited. So here's Jerusalem. Mother Church is down there. And this is where Paul left from, if, again, in, in um, um, the book of Acts. His first uh, missionary journey was out of Antioch. Here is Ephesus which he planted on his second uh, journey out, uh, his second missionary journey. So Ephesus is here, which is what is in uh, present-day Turkey, across from Greece, and here's the Aegean Sea, and it's on, on, off of the Mediterranean there. So just to give you some, uh, some bearings uh, there, it is a port city, and so that's one of the reasons why it's such a large and important city. And here are the things that Ephesus was known for. It was known for its commerce and consistently strong economy. It was known for its emphasis on, on entertainment and the arts. Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, had a coliseum that could hold 20,000 people. That is impressive uh, for any city, let, any city today, let alone a city uh, during the first century. That's a big, big deal. They were also known for the silversmithing industry. So lots and lots of silversmiths. Um, there, there were uh, tremendous resources around the area, so it made it a natural place for people to, to do that kind of work. And the silversmithing would be uh, anywhere from, from dinnerware to votives and statues to trim on, on homes and on furniture and, and ashtrays and all kinds of uh, things uh, like that. The city of Ephesus also boasted the temple of the Greek goddess Artemis. And this temple was built hundreds of years earlier in 550 BC, and it was so impressive that it was considered one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. So who's Artemis? Well, as we studied in Acts, there's this thing called the Pantheon, um, which is not Christian. But the Pantheon is, is what uh, non-Christian people, many of them do, is they assume that there is a god or a goddess over certain aspects of our life. So there, there might be a god of the weather. And so if you need something to go on with the weather, you, you pray and offer a sacrifice or whatever to the god of the weather. And then there's the god of the harvest and the god of sex and all of, all of that. Artemis, check this out, Artemis is the god of several things. She's the goddess of several things. She's the goddess of the wilderness, of the hunt, of wild animals, of childbirth, and of virginity. 
Now, that's an interesting combination, isn't it? So, in my mind, goes to dark places like this. I imagine that the supreme being of the pantheon one day is, all right, we got to have all these gods and goddesses in charge of all these different areas. So, my question is, did Artemis get first pick? Well, I'm going to pick these five. Or was she the last one to get to pick? And she just got what was left over. I don't know. But that's a very interesting uh, combination. And understand that there's a connection between Artemis and the silversmithing industry. Much of what the silversmiths did was build statues and votives to this goddess Artemis. And as I mentioned in the Acts series, there was a, a, a fairly significant region close to Ephesus called Arcadia that loved Artemis. So I just, I think that's, apparently I'm the only one that thinks that's ironic. Anyway, so. And, and then this is the, the other thing that, that Ephesus is known, was known for. Magic. Magic. Now, what are the implications on that for this letter? Well, magic depends on power. And a major theme found in the book of Ephesus is the power of Jesus Christ. He is the cosmic power uh, and the creator of all things in the universe. He has the power to judge all things. He has the power to unify all things. He has the power to reconcile, redeem, and restore all things. In other words, take all the magic power you want. It cannot stand before the power of Jesus. That's one of the major themes that Paul is trying to get across to the recipients of this letter. And Paul uses the Greek words that we translate as power. Two of them uh, would be words that, uh, if you ever wonder where we get the English word dynamite from, it's from the a Greek word dunamis. And, and then there's another word, another Greek word, energia. We get the word energy from that. And there are several other Greek words that are translated as, can be translated as power. He uses those Greek words in his letter to the Ephesians more than all of the other letters he wrote combined. So this is a significant part of this letter. And so one reason Paul writes this letter is to caution God's people, that would be us, uh, to resist the Ephesian life of magic, mantras, and manipulation and embrace their identity in Christ. Uh, the, the scholar S.M. Baugh writes this, Ancient Ephesus forms an appropriate background to the epistle because of this city's fascination with magic and the occult. This helps explain Paul's emphasis on the power of Jesus Christ over all heavenly and worldly authorities and on his triumphal ascension as head over the church and over all things in creation. I'm glad Ba emphasizes the ascension there because you and I talk about uh, Jesus coming again, and that's wonderful, and we need to be focused on that, and that's where our hope lies. But we need to remember that he had to ascend first, and that's really important as well because he was resurrected. Uh, three main themes that we'll see emerge in this letter. Number one, Jesus Christ has reconciled all things to himself. Number two, uh, Jesus has united all people from all nations to himself in the church. And then number three, the cosmic defeat of earthly powers and idols or false gods. And one way to look at this book is through what I would call an internal outline of the book. You can actually outline the book internally by looking at the major uh, theme verse in, in each of the six chapters. So here you go. Chapter one would be verse 10. God's will in Christ Jesus is his plan to unite all things in Jesus, things on earth, and things in heaven. 
In other, word, God re- in other words, God reverses the curse of original sin through Jesus Christ and brings unity to all things. Chapter 2, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, the restoration of all things in that God is actually working through us. We're part of that restoration process through the church, through us individually as well. Chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God makes his glory known through the church. If you don't think the church is important, you need to read Ephesians. It's really important. Chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Here you go. Ephesians shows us a family that the world could never create. This family here, the world could never create. What is going on here? Uh, Chapter 5, verse 14. Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead. Christ will shine upon you. In other words, in Christ, we are alive as new creations through the resurrection. And then chapter 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. That is the cosmic power to, to defeat all earthly power. So here we go. Let's... um. Get started with those first four verses. Let me reread them, and we'll kind of pull them apart. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and and are the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So verses 1 and 2 are what you might call Paul's sort of customary salutation and introduction, and then verses 3 and 4 get us started on Paul's first point. His first point right out of the gate in this letter is that we should... Live as a blessing to God and to others because God has already blessed us in so many ways. And verses 3 through 14, this is so important to understand for the next six weeks. Verses 3 through 14 outline all the ways that God has blessed us in Christ Jesus. And depending on how you count those blessings, there are anywhere from 15 to 23 blessings. I count 23 in here. And we're going to see three of them this morning. Three of them. And what's also interesting about verses 3 through 14, which is why you have to keep this in mind over the next six weeks, because we're going to take six weeks to go through verses 3 through 14, including today. What we have to keep in mind is that verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek are all one long sentence. One thought of Paul's. From 3 through 14. 
In the English, the translators have broken it up, at least in the ESV, which is what we use at Redemption, they've broken it up into five different sentences. But Paul was just like writing, writing. This was all one continuous thought. So we have to remember that this is, every time we look at one verse in 3 through 14, it's part of a whole. We need to remember that. So he starts and he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Apostle of Jesus Christ reminds the readers of this letter of his authority in Christ. Uh, Paul is an apostle, which means he's an official accredited representative of Jesus. And he gets that because Jesus specifically appeared to Paul. The resurrected Christ appeared to Paul in Acts chapter 9 when he was on his way to Damascus to imprison and kill Christians. Paul was not a Christian at this point, but the resurrected Christ appears to him and then calls him into ministry, and he says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to preach the gospel. You're going to proclaim the gospel primarily to Gentiles. Paul was a Jew, so that's interesting. To your hated enemy, you're going to proclaim the gospel, and you're going to suffer for it. But that makes him an apostle, too, because he's encountered the resurrected Christ in that way. But he has to remind them of this because it's unfortunate This is a church that Paul planted, but he still has to remind them, the recipients, of his authority to even be able to write this letter. It's been several years, but several of the people in the church probably don't know him personally anymore as they've been doing their work over the last decade. And I I just have to tell you, the natural, sinful, selfish, narcissistic way we humans all have for despising and rejecting all authority, of course... Uh, except, of course, our own, is why he has to remind them of this. It, it is so easy not only just to push aside somebody like Paul, but many of us begin to push aside Jesus and his word because we're just more comfortable with our own authority. And so Paul needs to remind them of this. And he says that he's doing this by the will of God. We're not even 10 words into this letter, and Paul already is making the case that God is sovereign. He's in control of everything. There is no maverick molecule in the universe. I'm doing this not by my own will, not by my own doing, but by the will and the power of God, by the filling of the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm writing to the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. That word saints is an interesting, interesting word for us. Literally, the word saints means holy ones. Holy ones. This should be obvious, but is Paul writing dead people? Are dead people going to be reading this letter? No, he's writing people who are alive. And he's calling them saints. A saint, in the biblical sense, is not someone who has died. It is anyone who has come to Jesus in repentance and faith and is in Christ. That's a saint. Once we are in Christ, we're now holy. We're saints. Yeah, we still sin. It's kind of that, if you've ever heard this phrase, the already but not yet of of the gospel. But our sin is now and forever owned and paid for by Jesus. And that makes us holy as far as God is concerned. What's the last thing Jesus said on the cross? Anybody? It is finished. Nothing you and I can do. He did it all. And in him, we are holy. We are saints. Okay? Now, 
That means that this room is filled with saints. <laughs> One person's excited about that. <laughs> the rest of you are thinking like I'm thinking, okay? I, I, you, 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 like your spouse, your friend, your parent, your kid. They may not think so, right? But we're saints. Um, in March, uh, once we're done with uh, uh, Amos and Titus on Wednesday nights, we're going to have a three-week uh, series on Wednesday night on marriage that Jackie and I are going to do, and we've titled it, So I Married a Sinner. So everybody gets to come to this who's married or thinking about getting married because you're going to marry a sinner, okay? But in Christ, God doesn't see that. I know there's some tension here. We're still dealing with our fallenness right now, but in Christ, when God looks at us, it's, it's, it's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus in his perfection because it is finished. We are saints. We are holy ones. And I know we don't always act like saints, but we are. And that's why we live in grateful and humble submission and service to Jesus. And then he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the definition of grace, you've heard me say it before, is unmerited favor. What can you do to merit unmerited favor? Nothing. There's nothing that you and I can earn the to do, to, can do to earn the grace of God. Here you go. If you get nothing else out of this morning, and there's been a lot this morning, I know. If you get nothing else, get this. Grace is a function of the character of the one who gives it, not the one who is receiving it. Grace is a function of the one who is giving it, not a function of the one who is receiving it. And then peace. Peace, we have to understand this too. Peace is not the absence of turmoil, but it's the presence of God in every situation. And that includes not just tribulation, but success. So many of us don't understand that the greatest test of our faith often comes when we're really successful and things are going well, because that's when we tend to forget about who Jesus is and how much we need him. And notice Paul always puts grace first before peace, because you really can't have peace until you've received the grace of God. And then we get into the start of 3 through 14. The greeting and salutation are over, and Paul writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Very simply, we are called to live as a blessing because of all the ways that we've been blessed in and through Jesus Christ. This idiom, in Christ, in him, Paul uses this phrase, this idiom, in Christ, 176 times in his letters. If you want to define uh, the major thing that Paul wants to get across to the recipients of all of his letters, it is those two words, in Christ. In Christ is everything. It's not just how we're blessed, although that's true, 
but it becomes and should be our entire identity, the totality of our identity. We are now in Christ. Here you go. You and I are not in our whiteness or any other ethnicity or race. We are not in our Americanness. We are not in our education. We are not in our cultural mores. We are not in our gender or sexual proclivities. It's not that some of those things don't matter. They do, but none of them matter as much as Jesus. We are in Christ. Here you go. I am not an Irish Christian. I am a Christian who happens to be Irish, which, by the way, as an Irish guy, before Jesus came into my life, my two emotional states were drunk and asleep. All that is, well, half of that has changed <laughs> since I came to Jesus. And then he says, in the heavenly places, that's where these blessings originate, from God. But also, in the heavenly places reminds us that many of the blessings we've received, we haven't fully experienced yet. We haven't experienced them in our totality. There's still something more that's coming. Again, here you go. Already, but not yet. Things such as our inheritance in heaven. We're not there yet, right? Okay? I know some of you go to Bosa Donuts and you think you're in heaven, but we're not there just yet. We haven't fully experienced that. The restoration of all things, we haven't fully experienced that yet. Seeing God in his perfect glory, we have not experienced that yet. But there are many things that we can experience now, seemingly in, in their totality. Our adoption as sons and daughters of God. The forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses, our, our, our present holiness and blamelessness the wisdom and insight that he blesses us with, and many, many others. Specifically here in verses 3 and 4, here are the first three blessings. We've been chosen in Christ, and we are holy, and we are blameless. There's three right there. So, uh, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Listen to what Ba writes about this. This is in sharp contrast with the pagan gods of their time, who were understood to be fickle and bound by an inscrutable and arbitrary fate. God's predetermination of salvation gives his people tremendous comfort, for we know that all who come to Christ do so through God's enabling grace and only his grace. It is therefore something that you and I can never sabotage or lose. You ever, you ever worry about losing your salvation? Well, quit worrying. You didn't do anything to get it in the first place. He's the one hanging on to you. That's good news. That is good news. And he's never going to let you go. It may feel like he's putting you through the ringer, but he's never going to let you go. Never going to let you go. And the fact that God chooses us does not limit our freedom, as some people insist, but rather it is an expression of his unconditional love for us. And through that salvation, he has made us holy and blameless. So holy, the word means to be set apart. Now, everyone wants to feel special, right? Right? Well, how special is that? God has set you apart. That should be like a t-shirt. 
I'm special. God has set me apart. I know nobody's going to go out and wear that because that's like just inviting trouble. Peter says, you're going to suffer, but don't invite it, okay? All right. But God has set us apart. Then you, okay, here you go. That's nice, Frank, but set us apart for what? What does he set us apart for? Well, the short answer is this, and I think it's pretty clear. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 22. And again, Allison mentioned it today. Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? This is what rabbis used to do in the first century. They'd sit around and, and you know, what, it would be like one of those bull sessions from the 60s without the drugs, okay? And they, would, and they would ask each other, you know, what do you think is the greatest commandment? And then they would have these debates. And they asked Jesus, you're a rabbi, what's the greatest commandment? And he said, it is to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength every bit of your being, and then it is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we've been set apart for. And then, of course, uh, somebody will always ask, all right, well, I'm looking for the loophole. Who's our neighbor? Because I I don't want to love everybody. There are some really stinky people out there, okay? Well, Well, who's our neighbor? And our neighbor is anybody that God sets in our path. This is, I know, this is really hard, including our enemies, including that person who cuts you off on the 101 or the 51. We are, we are to love our neighbor. And I know some of, I, I think this, this is pretty ideological, right? Love everyone, including our enemies. Jesus said that in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount. He said, you're to love your enemies. But that's how Jesus loved us. I, I think that he has a right to expect that since he loved us while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of his, he loved us, that he can make the same call on our life. He went and died for us. And it wasn't out of any worthiness in us. It was out of his character and purpose that he did that for us. There's no way you and I can be loved any more than that. And, and, and I don't think that you and I will ever do a really good job of loving others until we fully understand our own brokenness and how much we are unconditionally loved in the midst of that brokenness by God. And then that word blameless. A couple things here. Um, one is practical in a worldly sense, and one is practical in an eternal and existential sense. So first, the practical, worldly sense. Why would somebody want to be blameless? Well, frankly, for most people, it is an issue of self-serving pride and piety. I want to be blameless um, so that I can feel good about myself. Uh, you, know, you know, I'm a good person. I don't hurt anyone. I'm pretty sure that God thinks I'm the bee's knees, all of that. I got to tell you something. Theologically, Jesus couldn't care less about that for you and me because he's already got that covered. He did that on the cross. It doesn't matter. He did it. He did it. So just quit taking the credit for it. In Ephesians, we'll look at that, that we're saved by grace so that no one can boast. It's not that anything, not from anything that you and I have done because we're not allowed to boast about our salvation because it was all him. He did it at the cross. He makes us righteous. So here's why being blameless, in other words, being someone without offense or guilt would be a gift to the world. It's for the benefit of others for the benefit of others. If we're blameless, we would be trustworthy and reliable for others. Just start to think about the implications of that. Suddenly, we are trustworthy and reliable 
all the time in every context, no matter what. That would allow all of the people in our lives to be able to count on us and all the people in our lives to be able to live a life free of worry and anxiety about how we might hurt them and betray them. How awesome would that be? And I know some of you are thinking, well, I've got that in my marriage or in my community group, but maybe you don't have it at work. Wouldn't that be nice if you had that at work? Maybe you've got that at work, but you don't have it at home. Wouldn't it be nice to have it at home or with your, your, your friends? That would be a great gift to give other people. And now the eternal sense of blameless. The word translated blameless is also translated in other places in the Bible as faultless or without flaw. In other words, though we are sinners, once we are in Christ, have you heard this before, even in this sermon? When God looks at us, he no, no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees our faults, our flaws. He only sees the perfection of Jesus. Think about that story in Genesis 3. The man and the woman are in the garden. Everything is wonderful. And, and Satan comes and, and starts that conversation with a woman, gets her to, to break the one commandment that God has for them, gets them to uh, eat of the fruit of the tree that they were told not to eat of. And their eyes became open, and they suddenly realized they were naked, and so they rushed to cover themselves. And then God comes to walk with them in the cool of the day, and the way that's phrased in the ancient Hebrew, it means that this was something that God did on a regular basis every single day, came to fellowship with the man and the woman, and for the first time ever, they hid from him because of the sin. And, and when he calls out to Adam, and he says, what is this that you've done? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And what does Adam do? The woman you gave me. Not me. Blame shifting. Blame shifting. We're all blame shifters. It's the second most common sin after rebelling against proper authority. We do it, we get caught, then we blame shift. That's just our natural fallen inclination. And we have spent thousands and thousands of years, humans have, trying to figure out how to get, how to get our blame taken care of. And we've tried to do it through religion, we've tried to do it through philosophy, tried to do it through politics, through blame shifting, of course. We've tried to do it through good works and causes. If I just get with the right cause, I can expunge my blame, blameless, my blame, my blame, the blame that I have. Part of my Irish emotion coming out. I need to fix that. Uh, we have forms of penance and self-flagellation. We've tried to do it through our education and technology, but there's only one place where you and I can accomplish blamelessness. Here you go. One place. It is through an outside supernatural intervention by the creator God of this universe who loves us unconditionally and demonstrated that love through the cross and resurrection of Christ. It's the only place. That's where we find our blamelessness. It's in him. As I wrap up, I want to read from John chapter 5, these three verses. This is Jesus talking. 
He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. What does that mean that if we believe in Jesus, we will not come into judgment? Here you go. It is finished. It is finished. There is judgment for sin. Uh, Receiving grace doesn't mean that there wasn't judgment and payment for sin. It just means that somebody else did it, and then we receive the benefit of that. On the cross, he took care of that judgment, so we don't have any judgment. We're not going to be condemned. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is here now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. The dead? Yeah. Those who are spiritually dead. We're alive in our flesh, but we're dead to God. And Jesus is saying, you're going to hear the gospel, and that's going to, you're going to be reborn by that. You're going to be a new creation. The dead will come to life spiritually. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Life, redemption, blamelessness, holiness. It's all in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together and we'll have our time of uh, reflection. God, thank you for your word and its truth and for how you call us. Through the, the power of your son's crucifixion and resurrection and the filling of your Holy Spirit, God, thank you for the great gift of our redemption. God, though we were once Dead in our sin, we are now made alive in Christ. God, thank you for that gift. Pray that we would go out and live that out now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.